It can be hard to know what our kids are really thinking and feeling. But when we encourage kids to engage with us in conversation, and when we lean in and actively listen, we inevitably learn something that helps us do better by them. Welcome to Dear Highlights, the podcast inspired by letters and emails from kids who write to highlights, seeking a listening ear and a little guidance as they wind their way through childhood. A short, sweet season, but also a period of heavy lifting for kids. I'm Christine French-Cully, Editor-in-Chief of Highlights and your podcast host. I'm joined by Hilary Bates, our podcast producer and thoughtful mom of two. We're here to amplify the voices of children and to explore with expert guests many of the issues that kids and families wrestle with regularly. We're glad you've joined us. Dear Highlights, my mom and dad have been separated for about a month. I have two cats. I get keys to Hillary, I'm really excited about today's episode. You know, kids are so deeply focused on family, friends, and school that we sometimes underestimate their awareness of the world's big issues. But many, many school-aged children have the ability to look outside themselves and see that they are part of something bigger. They are interested and willing to learn about complex world problems, and of special interest to them is the health of our big blue marble, planet Earth. Kids write to us about endangered animals and air and water pollution, conservation, and so much more. And they are eager to want to make a difference. A reader named Padma wrote, I told my parents, sisters, and brother that they should learn to conserve energy and water, but they don't seem to listen. What should I do? Another reader, Crystal, wrote and listed ways she has asked her family to live in a more sustainable way. I'm really concerned about the earth, she told us. And Hillary, I know that this is a topic you've discussed with your kids and some of their friends. Uh, what, What did you learn from those conversations? We feel really inspired by the kids who write highlights who have all these ideas about how to help. And that's what we love to hear from kids and is natural to hear from kids. But I've shared with you that I'm really concerned about the kids who aren't writing us. In my school age kids social circles, there is a lot of conversation around climate change. And the thing that I hear in a lot of that conversation that worries me is a sense of fatalism creeping in that doesn't make them inspired to do things, but instead makes them feel that their future will be smaller and have less opportunity and the sense that it's too late or there's nothing we can do about that. And I think that that is, of course, not something we want children to feel. And it's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, climate change is a pretty weighty subject. But our guest today shows us how we can talk about it in a truly uplifting way. I was so excited that to listen to Dr. Hayhoe, and I hope that everyone who listens feels the way we felt afterwards, which is inspired to go out there and talk with kids in a way that uplifts them, and for ourselves to feel uplifted that there uh, is collective action that we can take. I hope that people today will look in the show notes to find some of the resources that she provided, which are really excellent things to share with kids. Yeah, really excellent recommendations there. Well, a little more about our guests before we um, tune in to listen. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is a Canadian atmospheric scientist and professor of political science at Texas Tech University, where she's director of the Climate Science Center. 
She's also an author and a sought-after speaker. She's considered one of the best communicators on climate change, and because of her climate change advocacy, Time Magazine listed her among the 100 most influential people in 2014. She is also a mother, and we're delighted that she's joined us to share her thoughts on how to talk to kids about climate change. Well, Dr. Hayhoe, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. We're delighted that you're here. Thank you for having me. We'd like to begin this episode by hearing you talk a bit about your work as a scientist, what it is that you study, and why you think it's so important to talk about your work. So I am a scientist. I have a bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy. I have a master's and a PhD in atmospheric science. And I study how climate change affects us in the places where we live, how it affects our food and the water we drink and the air that we breathe, how it affects whether we have snow on our mountains, um, whether we have a green lawn, what types of animals and plants and insects we might see in our yard, and how the places we love are changing as climate changes. So I started studying climate change because I realized how profoundly it affects every single person on this planet. But I realized that studying it is not enough because it's like a physician studying a condition that every single human has. And every single human needs to know about it. They need to understand why it matters to them and what they can do to help be part of the solution. So that's where the communication comes in. I feel that we climate scientists, as the physicians of the planet, so to speak, have a responsibility to share with everyone who's being affected by climate change today, which today is quite literally everyone, why it matters and what each of us can do to be part of the solution. In your talks, you sometimes reference a public opinion poll conducted by Yale, which revealed that 70% of people polled believe the climate is changing and that the change is harmful, but two-thirds of the people polled say they never talk about it. Why do you think that's the case? I think we don't talk about it for a few different reasons. First, some people feel like, well, I'm not qualified to talk about it. I have to be a scientific expert. And believe me, the science is the last thing we need to talk about at this point. People are overwhelmed with pictures of melting icebergs and starving polar bears. We need to talk not so much about what's in our head, but what's in our heart, how it affects the people and the places and the things that we love. And we need to talk about what real solutions look like. So then people say, well, I don't want to start an argument because they often assume when I say, let's have a conversation that I'm talking about the archetypal Uncle Joe, so to speak. Um, the person who you know in your life who might be an uncle or a neighbor, or a colleague who will not leave this topic alone. Like a dog with a bone, they are always bringing up science denial arguments. And those people are, in the words of the Yale Program on Climate Ch Change who did these, these surveys, these people are dismissive. They will dismiss 200 years of climate science. They'll dismiss 2,000 climate scientists. They'll dismiss 2 million scientific studies. So why would we think we can change their minds? I don't think we can, barring a miracle. But here's the good news. They're only 8% of the population. And But then yeah. people say, well, and I think this is actually the biggest reason, why have a conversation where I'm just going to be more depressed afterwards than I was before? Because... 70% of us are already worried about climate change. 83% of mothers 
are worried. 86% of young people are worried. And why have a conversation about something that you're already worried about, but you don't know what to do? 50% of us feel hopeless and helpless and don't know where to start. So that's why we don't talk about it. But it's exactly why we need to talk about it. Not about the science, but about why it matters here and now. That's what's in our hearts. And about what we can do. That's what's in our hands. What real solutions look like. And those conversations, they leave us feeling empowered, encouraged, determined, and motivated rather than despairing and depressed. Well, we're all about talking to kids from the heart on this podcast. So thank you for that. But, you know, even though people claim not to be talking about climate change very much, our children seem to be hearing about it. We know from our reader mail and from conversations we all have with children that many of them are very concerned. But what they know or they think they know about climate change often raises questions or confuses them. And they want help in thinking about the issue. So you're a mother. You have two children, I think. I am. I have one. We have one child. What do you say to your child about climate change? I tell him that it's real and it's serious. But here is what the real solutions look like. Here is what is already happening in the world today. Here's what this city is doing or that state is doing. Here's this new technology that's come out. Here's what our family is doing. Here's what other kids are doing. If we talk about what solutions look like, our kids are smart. They get it. In fact, honestly, kids are really leading the way in many areas of having these positive, constructive conversations about what we can do to fix it. There's kids inventing machines that cost $5 that will recharge your cell phone using the sun and the wind. There's 11-year-old children attending the scientific conferences I attend with technology they've developed on how to generate electricity from stream flow. There are young women winning national science fairs with an algae biofuel project that they originally built under their bed until her mom kicked her into the garage. <laughs> so <laughs> kids are really amazing. And I have this series on YouTube called Global Weirding, not global warming, but global weirding. And it's on YouTube because that's where kids get a lot of their information these days. Mm-hmm. And one, I each episode answers a frequently asked question. And one of the questions we got is, well, you know, I'm just a kid. What am I supposed to do? So we made an episode, and each of our episodes is super short, six or seven minutes long. But we made an episode on what are kids doing. And we could have made a whole season on what kids are doing because kids are amazing. And when we tell them, and we have to be honest, age appropriately honest with our kids and say, hey, this thing is real. And here's why you might have noticed that I live in Texas and it's 91 degrees in March, for example, or here's why there isn't as much snow there as there used to be, or here's why we're seeing these strange bugs in our yard. But always, always immediately pair that information with, and here's what we are doing about it, or here's what you can do about it, or here's what other people are doing about it, and here's how we can all be part of the solution, because kids don't recognize what's impossible. All they see is what is possible. And so by empowering our children, by making them aware, not just of the fact that we have a problem, but the fact that they can be part of the solution, we are giving them hope. I think you're saying something really important about how to talk to kids in a way that lets them feel like they're part of the solution by pointing to all the work that's out there. I do want to pause and ask for a moment about, you even quoted the statistic of how many kids feel hopeless when they think about 
the conversation of climate change. I know I have two kids in my house. This is a big topic for them. It's a big topic for their friend group. And when I talk to them about it, one of the things that um, really worries me sometimes is I hear in kids a sense of fatalism a little bit about what's happening. Um, When I was even telling my son that I was going to get to talk to you today, you know, one of the things he said is, you know, we know what to do, but people won't do it. And I think that's a sobering thing to respond to. Um, I wonder when you think about that, um, you know, I hear you saying like, show people what is being done and how they can be part of it as part of the solution. But are there other ways we should be listening or honoring what we're hearing from kids about that frustration with lack of action that's happened so far? Oh, absolutely. I did an event uh, a little while ago with a 15-year-old from Indiana who's part of a group of high school students in Indiana who are writing climate legislation for the state. And they are doing all the hard work to find a Republican sponsor and a Democrat sponsor to get the legislation to committee and then hopefully get it to the point where it would be voted on. And he said something which is completely true. He said, this is not our job. We should not have to be doing this. The fact that they are doing it means that there are adults who have abnegated their responsibility to do so. And that is the situation all of our kids are in. But as humans, we have a tendency. Well, we have many tendencies. But here's one that relates to what you're just saying. We have a tendency, and this has been documented again and again, to think that we care and we are activated, but nobody else is doing anything. They did a study a long time ago where they looked at recycling and they asked people, do you recycle? And then they asked people, how how many of your neighbors do you think recycle? And people systematically, radically underestimated the number of their neighbors who actually recycled. And the same way we think we care, but nobody else cares. Well, it turns out most of us actually do care, but here's the thing. How would you know if we never talk about it? If we never talk about it, how do we know who else cares about it? We don't. So that's why conversations are so important, not just to share our mutual concern, but to talk about what real solutions look like. So when, you know, when a child or my son or anyone says to me, well, this is really concerning, but nobody's doing anything, I would say it is really concerning and and people should be doing more. But you know what? People are doing things. And then I give them some tangible examples of what is being done. And literally, wherever you live, if you just look at your city or your state or your province, if you look at some of the biggest corporations as well as some of the smallest ones, if you look at what schools are doing um, and universities too, if you look at what churches are doing or even organizations or clubs, and especially if you look at what young people are doing, you will have a new story for every single day of the year to tell your children. In fact, that would be kind of fun. Do you think there's a climate action calendar where every day, you know, you peel off that page and it's got like a little story of some climate action that's happening that you can be encouraged by? That's a good idea. That's sort of what we need to do with our kids. And, you know, they can come up with ideas themselves. So a number of years ago, I was giving a Sunday evening talk And it was not aimed at children at all. It was a discussion with a professional mediator and with someone who's in the creative arts. And we were talking about how do we reach across gaps to engage people on climate change when we often think it's somebody else's problem. So there's a man who works for a renewable energy company and he wanted to attend the talk, but he couldn't get a babysitter for his son who was about eight or nine. So he said, you know, you'll have to come with me, but don't worry, you can bring your books and you can just sit and read, it's okay. So he brought his son. 
But within like five minutes, his son wasn't reading his book anymore. He was just listening. And as they were leaving, he said to his dad, I have to do something about this. This is really serious. And his dad said, well, it's okay. I've got it covered. I work for a renewable energy company. And his son was like, no, I need to do something. So he thought about it and he came up with this all on his own. He decided, you know what? At my school, they waste a lot of energy. And it's true across the whole United States through energy efficiency alone, we could cut our carbon emissions in half. And he said, you know, they never put the right things in the recycling bins and, you know, there's food waste in the cafeteria. And so he said, I'm going to start a team at my school and we're going to tell people to turn off the lights and to put the right things in the recycling. <laughs> and his dad, I didn't know any of this. His dad told me about this much later. And he said, it completely changed my son's experience at school. He came home from school every day, just overflowing with stories about what he and his friends had done. He was empowered. He was motivated. And he really enjoyed telling Mrs. Harris that she had put the piece of paper in the wrong bin. <laughs> that really fits with what we know about kids. Um, we often underestimate their interest in grappling with some of the world's big problems and, and their ability to do so. They have this optimism that really fuels the belief that they can make a difference even at a young age. Um, that's really inspiring. Um, you know, you said we don't necessarily have to talk about the science. And we often remind parents that they don't have to know all the answers to talk about difficult topics with their kids. But are there some basic facts about climate change that parents and teachers and grandparents might need to know to help them address their kids' concerns? Or do you have a recommended resource for adults that might help them feel more equipped to have this conversation? Yes. So we do need to be able to provide a basic explanation, especially for our kids who ask why, 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 <laughs> about why this is happening and what the solutions look like. And even though the science of our planet is as complex as that of the human body, we can explain what's happening very simply. And I can do this in one minute. Here we go. Here we go. Our planet has a natural blanket of heat-trapping gases that keep us at just the perfect temperature for life. The sun's energy shines down and goes through this blanket like a window, and the Earth heats up, and then the Earth gives off heat energy. And just as a blanket traps your body heat on a cold night, keeping you warm, in the same way this amazing natural blanket of heat-trapping gases traps the Earth's heat, keeping us again at just the perfect temperature for life. We would be a frozen ball of ice if it weren't for this amazing blanket. So if it's natural, which it is, and if it's good, which it absolutely is, what's the problem? The problem is that at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we started to dig up more and more coal, and then oil, and then natural gas, and burn it. And when we burn it, it produces more heat-trapping gases. And these gases are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. And just as you would if somebody snuck into your room and put an extra blanket on you that you didn't need, you would wake up sweating saying, hey, I didn't need this extra blanket. In the same way, that's why our planet is heating up and that's why it's running a fever. And how does that affect us? Not as much through global warming as it does through global weirding. We see climate change loading the weather dice against us. It's making our storms more severe, our heat waves more intense, our heavy downpours more frequent, hurricanes are dumping a lot more rain, and wildfires are burning greater area. 
It's taking all these natural events and it's supersizing them, making them worse, affecting everybody around the whole planet. But it's affecting people who are already marginalized, who are already disadvantaged, who already don't have many of the benefits that we have. It's affecting them most. And that's why it's not fair. So that's kind of the very short version of what it is and why it matters. But our Global Weirding series that I mentioned before on YouTube is a great resource. We have lots of short videos on the science and the impacts, as well as on how we can talk about this and what we can do. And then I'm also part of this group called Science Moms. And we created that because a bunch of us who are mothers and who are climate scientists are really worried about this because of our kids, because we're moms. And we've had a few dads join up too, of course. So we created a website called sciencemoms.com and we have curated short videos and books and movies to watch with your kids. We've got social media channels with little factoids that moms can share. And it's a great resource for starting conversations and for information that's appropriate to share with your kids. Thank you for that. I think parents and grandparents and teachers are going to find all that really, really helpful. What a... You've made starting the conversation sound um, doable, very doable. So, Catherine, we'd like to close every podcast by asking our guests this question. Uh, at Highlights, we believe that children are the world's most important people. That's our core value. And if we really believed this, and if we are concerned about the effect climate change will have on our children and our grandchildren, what would we as a society be doing differently? We would be doing a lot of things differently. And, but that doesn't mean that we would abandon everything else we care about. In fact, the opposite. The reason we care about climate change is not because it's a separate issue. It's because it is a threat multiplier. It takes every other issue that we're concerned about, whether it's poverty or hunger or lack of access to clean water or health uh, concerns or uh, racial or gender inequities and injustices, it takes every issue we're already concerned about and make it, makes it worse. The way I think about it is we have these buckets that we're putting our time and our effort and our attention into, and we think, well, here's climate change. It's an extra bucket. I don't even have room on my shelf for an extra bucket at this point. But whoever we are, wherever we live, whatever we care about, whatever we are teaching our children, whatever our priorities today, climate change is the whole in every single other bucket. There is no pathway to a better future without fixing climate change. And we want that better future for our children and for everyone else's children. And so we would see, I think, an incredible focus on, you know what, we have to do this. Efficiency clean energy, nature-based solutions, building resilience to the impacts that are already here today, we would see a complete sea change. Why? Because we know that all of those things have benefits for us today. They clean up our air and our water and improve our health and give us more livable, walkable cities and a more stable economy and better jobs. Oh, and they help with climate change too. That's what our world would look like. And one of my favorite books is called The Future We Choose. It's by Christiana Figueres who is a parent herself, and she is the Costa Rican diplomat who negotiated the Paris Agreement. She was in charge of getting every single country in the world to, and this is unprecedented, it's never happened before, agree on a treaty, and that treaty was about climate change. And after she finished that, instead of, you know, retiring to a hammock on a beach in Costa Rica, like I would have after that process, she went and she wrote the most 
hopeful and optimistic book I've ever read. And again, it's called The Future We Choose. And in it, she paints a picture of what our lives will look like in 2030, which is not that far away, if we choose climate solutions. How walkable our cities will be, how clean our air will be, how vastly improved our health will be, how much safer a world our children will be living in. And imagining that we were in 2030, looking back to today, she says, but the most profound lesson we learned was that we were only ever as doomed as we believed ourselves to be. So that is why it is so essential to practice hope, to practice active hope, because hope doesn't find us if we just kind of sit there waiting for it to show up. We have to go out and we have to look for hope. We have to look for examples of people making a difference, of the world changing, of places where we could add our hand to make a difference. And it doesn't have to be at the international or national level, changing something in our city, in our school, in our neighborhood, in our family, in our church, in our Rotary Club, in our group of friends who walk our dogs together or go paddling together on the weekend. We truly can change the world. And it begins with a conversation today. That is how the ripple effect of our lives affects change. And so I wrote my own book myself this past year, and it answers that question. Where do we find hope and how do I as an individual affect change today? And it's called Saving Us, because it's not about saving the planet. It is about us. Thank you so much. Uh, listeners, we will put in our show notes uh, references to all the resources that uh, Dr. Hayhoe has mentioned today in our conversation. Catherine, thank you so much for this helpful, hopeful conversation, sobering. Uh, we feel more of an urgency, I think, than we did before, but uh, we also feel optimistic. And, you know, we always want to leave kids with hope. When we talk to kids about difficult subjects, we always want to leave kids with hope. And I think you've showed us exactly how we can do that. Thank you. You can learn more about kids' hopes and dreams and their worries and fears from the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids, available on highlights.com or wherever you buy your books. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Special thanks to the producer of this podcast, Hilary Bates, and also to our audio engineer, Ted Weckbacher.